Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to episode six of Classically Untrained. I'm here with Katia Osorio, a good friend of mine, bassoonist and current student at Yale. Katia, what are your pronouns? Hey, I am she, her. Awesome. Cool. So uh, you're in New Haven right now, huh? I am. How was your semester? Are you done? Um, almost. I just had a final yesterday. I have another final on Tuesday. And then, um, let's see, I have some recordings to do for a project. And then by the end of this weekend, I'm done. Awesome. Sounds great. So everything's kind of winding down for you. And what was uh, what was your semester like? It's first semester of grad school, right? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It's been kind of a blur. My move to New Haven was not very smooth at all. Um, like I already had like a, I mean, COVID at the end of my undergrad, you know, very busy and stretched out over the summer. And then um, when I tried to move to New Haven, it took me three tries. So basically, I wasn't able to get settled in until like two weeks into the start of the semester. So it's been I feel like I've been playing catch up the entire time and how the end is here. I'm just like, oh, wait, that happens. Right. I remember you telling me about that and trying to move up there and you were so scared. You're like, oh, my goodness, like I, I won't be able to move up here. Like I can't live here. Like it was ridiculous, like with the whole apartment thing. Shout out to my Theo for letting me crash at his place for like a month in New York. That honestly lifesaver, <laughs> because imagine like moving across the country just had to move back like two weeks later. Yeah, that, that would have been really stressful. Either way, I'm glad that you were able to get up there and get situated. So where are you from? So I am born and raised from Houston, Texas. So H-Town represents. H-Town, hold it down. Those who are actually from Houston, I'm from the north side, closer to the spring area. <laughs> Houston's very big. Houston is very big. And it's also, I feel kind of like San Antonio, in the way San Antonio is, and a lot of big cities, it's really like economically segregated, wouldn't you say? What was it kind of like growing up around spring and especially getting into playing bassoon, which, you know, I think bassoon is definitely not an instrument uh middle schooler just chooses <laughs> because it looks cool i feel like band directors kind of are like this person looks like they can pay attention i'm gonna put them on bassoon or i'm gonna put them on oboe so what was that like so my family lives in spring now but like the house we grew up in was still in like houston city limits but like still on the north side near um aldine like on the west side of 45 like in that area so it was predominantly, I mean, it was all black and Latinos. So the schools I went to were all black and brown kids. Um, that was the norm for me. So middle school, yeah, I had no idea what the hell a bassoon was when I picked it. Um, so in Texas, like the band culture is insane. And a lot of middle schools, what they did, at least the middle school I went to, they would have what was called instrument petting zoos. At those, they would invite like fifth graders who are coming, they, you know, the following year to come check out the band hall if they want to join band and like pick out an instrument, try them out and stuff like that. Before you went to an instrument petting zoo, you had like a list of your, like what you wanted to play and then you would go try them in person later. So my list in this order was flute, then clarinet. And if all else failed, I wanted to hit things with sticks. I wanted to be percussionist. Ooh, percussion, hell yeah. 
Third oh. option, holding it down. <laughs> right. So then I got there, I guess, played around on some instruments and um, I could not make a sound on flute. Um, clarinet, don't remember how that went, but obviously I'm not playing it now. So, and one of the band directors then took me into his office and like was talking to me, had me do these little weird coordination exercises. And I was like, what? what are you making me do? Like, I'm confused, what's happening? And then he was like, you know, I've seen your grades and like, I really think you could do well on bassoon or French horn. And I was like, what are those? I don't understand what you're saying. Um, and then he, you know, kept talking me into it. And I was just kind of like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then at one point he dropped the word scholarships. It's like, if you play bassoon, you can get a lot of scholarships. And I was like, huh, okay. You know, not knowing really what I was getting myself into, I was just like, ooh. And in retrospect, do you think that that whole exchange was a little weird? I mean, how band directors, because I know a, several people who are oboists and bassoonists, be, and even some French horn, hornists who have similar stories where the band directors are like, you are a good kid, so you should play oboe. Like, how does that make yeah, sense? No, I feel like it's funny that he gave me the options of bassoon or French horn, because the thing is like my, the people, I guess he's like, you know, those instruments are for smart people or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But it's funny because all of my friends that played French horn, like from middle school on, were all the biggest dumbasses. Like they were smart, like, you know, they get good grades and we're in like advanced class and stuff like that. But they were like the biggest dumbasses. I'm just like, you know, so I don't know. I don't know. I mean, bassoon definitely isn't like a stroll through the park or anything either, but. And what does that mean though, that, you know, it's for, it's for the smart kids. Like, how do you take that? And especially thinking about it now. I mean, of course, when, you know, a little 12 year old hearing that like is flattered, but, you know, looking at it now, I'm just kind of like, eh, I guess that doesn't, you know, that doesn't really mean anything. I know plenty of like, not so smart bassoonists, but plenty of really smart trumpet players. I think it's just a recruitment tactic, honestly. Maybe there might be like elements to like playing the instruments that require a little more focus or attention to detail or like patience or something like that. But I mean, I'm also not an educator, so, you know, I could be not saying the right things, but I think it's honestly a recruitment tactic because no one really picks a low or bassoon or French horn. Yeah, I can, I can see that. The thing that just, especially after hearing multiple directors say this and somebody who's not a primarily an educator myself, I guess I don't really understand, but they say, oh, it's for the, the smart kids, the smart kids. Like what's the what is implied there, I wonder? Like, maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but it's like, it, it kind of says, you have to have an image to play this instrument. This instrument is is for this group of people, not for this group of people. Yeah, what you just said is very true. Like, I feel like in general, like that's just a smaller example of the larger like idea that like, for example, classical music musicians have a certain like quality or like there's a certain like expectation of personality or like appearance or or I mean stereotypes basically. And so going forward, you know, you started playing the bassoon in middle school. 
And what was that like going on into later middle school and into high school? You know, bassoon was like a challenge. It was a fun hobby. I sounded like absolute garbage for a while. Um, I, I remember the first time I brought my instrument home in sixth grade. Yeah, so I thought, you know, bassoon was like a challenge. It was a fun hobby. I sounded like absolute garbage. I, I remember the first time I brought my instrument home in sixth grade and I like played a note and my mom was like, you sound like a ship. And I was like, sorry. A I'm ship? Like, what kind of ship? Like the Titanic? Like, yeah, I guess like a ship horn, like a cruise ship horn is like, I'm just like, I don't know what else to do. Leave me alone. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was fun. Like I enjoyed it. I was definitely, I, you know, a bander. So I guess I definitely lived up to that um, nerdy bassoonist stereotype for quite a bit. Um, and then towards the, oh, fun fact, I also like picked up the tenor saxophone in my eighth grade year just for fun on the side. What? I didn't know that. What was that like? It was like, okay, so I had, we had a change of like, uh, teachers. So the band director I had in eighth grade, he was a huge like jazzer, Mr. Clark. Oh, I love him. I haven't seen him in years, but he's actually like the head of the arts department in Spring ISD. Amazing. Um, but he's a saxophonist and this huge, huge jazz head. And he was like, I'm gonna start a jazz band. You wanna play saxophone? And I was like, okay. And then he just gave me a tenor sax and he's like, all right, go figure it out. And I was like, okay. And like, I mean, like after playing bassoon, like it's not, it's not rocket science either. You know what I mean? So that was fun. I played Barry saxophone the first two years of high school. And jazz band too, I even like did a clinic at Midwest my sophomore year. I was learning bassoon and it wasn't until I came across the Monty Wins on YouTube, like sometime in eighth grade, where I was like, oh, this is so cool. I wanna keep playing bassoon. They're doing that with like this instrument, like I wanna do that too. So kept going through high school um, eventually dropped saxophone because I was like, I actually want to get good at bassoon and go to school for it. So yeah, I did. And then by senior year, I, well, when I begged my band director to like get me a teacher and like he did. And so I started taking lessons um, that were, you know, paid through like the school district. My district that I really appreciate, like that very strong like music departments because they're very well funded because it's all like, you know, lower income. Cause that's, that's one thing about like my district that I really appreciate. Like I have very strong like music departments because they're very well funded because it's all like, you know, lower income um, black and brown students. But um, yeah, so senior year, I like took auditions and then went to college. Yeah, and that's good that the, that the administration really saw the value in it whether or not that was for football, you know, a lot of programs are like, oh, well, you know, the band needs to be helping out the football team. Let's give them money too. So, you know, either way, it kind of helps the funding of the band and the band does reap a lot of benefits from that. It's not a perfect system. I appreciate it. Like looking back now, like, um, cause even after my family moved houses, like I still, I finished high school in the same district, but my siblings are in a different district and my brother's in high school band and like I just cannot 
like emphasize how grateful I am for like the funding that my district had because like if I try to do band where my brother is now like that wouldn't have been financially feasible that's that's a shame that most more districts don't see the importance of it for what it is don't see the importance for music for music's sake um, it's always well it improves test scores or it, it we're going to help the football team or it gives something for kids to do to stay off the streets all these other bullshit reasons it, it's music for music's sake so we both went to ut together and you got there in fall of 16 right and what was that like at least your first your first year my first year was fun but at the same time it sucked so in like a few different ways so i already I mean, I mentioned like the type of like district I came from. So going from like the schools that I went to and that type of like sheltered environment really um, to an institution like UT that's just full of like a bunch of rich white people. I underestimated the culture shock. And I had also been kind of like struggling with like, like I didn't even realize it, but like um, imposter syndrome. My last year of high school, when I was taking auditions, UT was the largest school I applied for. I didn't even think twice about doing conservatories because, you know, my director, for example, was like, I told him I wanted to apply to UT and he's like, oh, well, you won't get in. I got in and he's like, oh, well, you won't get any scholarship. I got a full ride. And then he's like, oh, well, even if you go, you won't get a lot of playing opportunities because it's really competitive over there. And then, you know, like, I think, were you there? Um, I mean, I played at Team Yay with the UT Win Ensemble and like have played in several operas, even played like, you know. Yeah, I remember our time in uh, Eugene O'Negan uh, playing oh, that. So much James Conlon. Yeah, when... going back to that conversation that you had, that's really odd because I feel like that exchange maybe fed into that imposter syndrome. And I feel like people of color especially get told that kind of thing way more often than white students, especially rich white students. You know, they're not told, oh, you know, you're going to go to a state school or you may not even get into a state school. You know, they're told like, oh, you're going to go to Juilliard and you're going to go to Curtis. And so I think that people who are from marginalized groups, not just people of color, you know, uh, queer musicians and women and like they get told those kinds of things, I feel like at a more significant rate and i think it feeds into this imposter syndrome i struggle with imposter syndrome too so i feel i feel what you're what you're getting at yeah yeah so like the shock of all that was a lot i mean my first semester i had no friends in the music school and like it was at purpose on purpose at that point um like i became good like great friends with my roommate and all of her friends um because I just like even in the music school, like, or even like Latinx or Hispanic people I would see there just very different, very like, very typical classical or like whitewashed or just very, um, I felt like I didn't fit in. And so because of that, I decided to reject like the company of music school, just like in general. Um, and because I mean, I didn't know how to process it. I was like, I'm in a place where like, yeah, we all have the same interests, but even then not that much. Cause I learned that like, you know, 
I'd have friends I would geek out about like all these like music things and stuff like this and orchestras and me a classically trained bassoonist hearing this stuff I'm just like is there something wrong with me that I'm not like reading about the same things like that I don't care this much about this that like my enjoyment comes from other things that like y'all can't culturally relate to like that is a really good point that you just brought. I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like a lot of the time musicians, especially the the higher you go in your education, there's a stigma that if you're thinking about anything else, then you're not dedicated. Oh, and, yeah. and that's really, really harmful, I think. It causes a lot of musicians to, I think, give up prematurely because they feel like they can't put effort and time into other things that make them happy because after a while you do something for 10 years you need to do something else like by the time you're most of us are 22 23 we've been playing our instrument 10 plus years and it's just ridiculous to think that somebody can do that without getting burnt out at some point and yet there's people who make you feel bad about it oh well oh, you're burnt out like why or you know they there's a bunch of passive aggression and so I think it's okay to focus on other things. I think we need to focus on other things. I think that's one thing wrong with the classical music culture is that it's such a bubble that people don't care about, for example, social issues. They don't care about that because they're, you know, quote unquote, too busy practicing. Yeah. See, like, and that crushed me. Like by the end of my freshman year, I almost like I considered withdrawing or dropping, like changing majors. Like I was, I was not enjoying it anymore because I was like, I don't, it takes a lot more effort than it should for me to feel comfortable here. But yeah, you know, speaking of that, going into my, I, I decided to stay. So I came back sophomore year and um, became friends with this pianist and one of my closest friends, Chelsea Daniel. Um, and like, it's funny because she kind of, dragged me into like a friendship and she's like kind of trying to pry into me and like I'm really glad she did because we became super close and um, we kind of bonded over like those shared experiences like everything that I'd experienced she did too and I was like whoa so I'm not broken like I'm not crazy you're feeling these things too you know she was also considering like leaving and stuff like that like it was insane and like um so we kind of found, found solidarity, solidarity with each other. And this uh, feeling of uh, this feeling of other is what you're talking about. Feeling ostracized from the classical community because you didn't fit the mold. Yeah, yeah. And like the only reason why I stuck around Butler was like for her or like any other um, friends I'd made after that point, you know, that let's be real, they weren't white. <laughs> um, because it was, you know, I learned that like what I was feeling was normal is just not talked about it a lot because there's not a lot of us there to talk about it. That's a really good point. There's not a lot of us there to talk about it. And the ones that are there may feel like they can't because then they'll be looked upon as as different and they're breaking the mold that we've established That's exists. That's another thing too, not serious. And if to be labeled as not serious, I mean, is a really big deal in university setting because it gets it gets back to your teachers even sometimes, you know, your studio mates start talking, well, you know, 
so-and-so is not serious because they're, they have a double major and they're doing other things. And the professor's like, oh, you know what? Yeah, they're not dedicating their whole lives to this. I don't think they're very serious about it. And it's like, um, <laughs> excuse me, you can't expect them to just, you can't expect an 18, 19 year old to want to just dedicate their life to this one thing that is so in the grand scheme of things unimportant yeah. you know and then just with this pandemic like a lot of the like a lot of these jobs don't exist anymore and i'm okay with that but the people who spent half their lives locked up in a practice room obsessed with like one thing and one thing only yeah and like it's good that you that you just said that because that is something that's been on my mind too like you know what I'm okay with that. I'm okay that I'm not having to you know, sacrifice time with friends and family right now, lock myself up in a room and work on an audition list to go play for someone that I don't know, just for them to hear something they don't like about my playing and then to send me home or to hire me based just on my playing and not what I am as a person. It's kind of a sobering moment to say, hey, you know what? Like now is the time, especially that we should feel like we can do other things. Yeah, like, I mean, I personally gave up on, not gave up. That sounds like I like gave up, well done. But I kind of let go of the idea of the need to aim for like an orchestral job. Not that, you know, it's completely out the window, but you know, I don't, I We've, went undergrad thinking, oh, the goal is to get good with a job in an orchestra. But, you know, I learned that I'm not a fan of orchestras, like the way, I mean, just its history, like as an institution or even like experience wise, I only played in orchestra at UT a handful of times. I did a lot of opera and new music and one ensemble, which was so much fun. But, um, you know, even when I played principal on Shostakovich 15, um, that was probably one of my least enjoyable musical experiences because I wasn't enjoying what I was doing. I was stressed about not screwing up and, you know, that, that was a, at that point, that was my junior year. At that point, it was kind of like a confirmation to myself that I don't like this and that's okay. Like, it's okay to be curious, I think is why I learned pretty early on during undergrad. This expectation to go to school just to, you know, play in an orchestra is like, it's kind of stupid. <laughs> I'll be real, like, it's just stupid. But the thing is accepting that it's okay to deviate from that expected path is like that takes work because there's not only letting go of something you might have dreamed of forever but kind of also realizing why it's okay to let it go because you're this pressure to like call it within the lines so to speak like with your career is kind of is rooted in a lot of things like misogyny white supremacy like all these it's very hard to want to do this knowing, hearing stories, you know, I remember I've heard stories of, oh, so-and-so made finals. He didn't even have to do a prelim round. You know, he subbed with the orchestra because so-and-so is his friend. So he just got advanced to finals. The committee already likes him because he subbed a couple times. You know, the job was his. You know, just the fact that these, that in itself says that these auditions really aren't blind for one, that they're, they're really not. There's very few fully blind auditions you know what are you getting hired for you're getting hired on the ability to play your instrument you know you show up to work you do your job you shut up and you go home i i don't like that i don't think that we're just 
our self-worth is just, can you play your instrument? Because at the end of the day, that ruins our self-worth. It both runs it and ruins it. It's, can you play your instrument? Oh, no, you didn't. You messed up in master class. Oops, sorry, buddy. You're only as good as your last performance. It's not true. You know, we put so much stake into such meaningless things, you know? And I think it's great that you brought up your struggle with coming to terms with that, because I remember we've had many long talks about this where you were like, Oh, I don't, I don't know. Like if I want to actually do this. And I'm like, Katya, like you're doing so many other great things right now. And you're worried about what some orchestra committee would think of you. Like, I remember just being like, you were one of the most intelligent people I know and one of the most hardest working and you're, you care about what some old like crusty ass committee sitting behind a screen thinks of you not to mention one of the best bassoonists I know you know remember John when John Mackey shouted you out at uh in your UT Win Ensemble performance oh, I thought about that he like texted Jerry Junkin after the concert yeah to play all my pieces forever so. hell yeah I remember that and Junkin read it out loud to to the ensemble the next morning but yeah and, and it's good that you that you mentioned the deviating from the career because how do you think somebody like the Amani wins got to where they they were they didn't they they had to reckon with the fact that hey we can do something else and do create meaningful musical experiences and not just sit in an orchestra for the rest of our lives yeah. And I think like also, um, you know, going off of like you bringing up the whole orchestra thing, like kind of who you know kind of thing, is that especially for people like us, like black, brown, lower income, yeah, lower income, like the way classical music is structured is that at this point, like, they don't really care. I mean, all these initiatives happening, like, let's be real, it's not they're not actually fixing. It's just kind of putting, they keep putting band-aids on the problem. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, when you see things like that and you realize them and you allow yourself to process what's happening, it's just like, if like this industry doesn't care about me, so why should I care about it in a way kind of thing? So, which is why I'm kind of like, uh, I don't care too much about like, or I first personally, I've, none of my, most meaningful musical experiences have involved classical music, like at all. Like I, I use my instrument, of course, but you know, I think I've also learned to look at my instrument more as like a tool or an extension of myself rather than looking at it as an object of conquest directly tied to like my self-worth, like how good I am at my instrument defines like how good I am of a person like that's the thing and the thing is like that's a very that's what we're just taught as classical musicians whether it's like explicitly said or not that's just kind of the what we're taught to believe how we're trained yeah of course you I know that you've told me this that this has been your philosophy for a while now and it's something that I am just really starting to open up to as well. Like this is something that, you know, playing percussion is something that I love, but I'm not going to see it as like an instrument to conquest. I'm not going to say, oh yeah, like I'm going to, I'm going to tame this beast, you know, like, no, I just want to express myself. And that has done wonders for my musicality. Like I am more loose and I am more open to musical experiences, which I wouldn't have been open to, but it was a really, really tough road that I'm still that I'm still traveling on and I'm sure you are too just with our being 
surrounded in this enclave of musicians who still define you and themselves by how good you are. And that's it. You know, you talked about meaningful experiences. What were, and especially with your organization that you helped create, what was that whole thing about? You know, I think that Exposure TV, which is the organization I'm talking about, was a really, really great thing. So what was the formation of that like? Yeah, so Chelsea and I, this is more of like a musical project than an actual performance experience. But so Chelsea and I, again, we became very close friends and kind of bonded over our like shared experiences. And um, we got comfortable to the point where like over winter break, the same year that we became friends, um, we would have, we would just start dreaming of these crazy things like, dude, what if we did this? Or dude, like, what if we do that? Like, can we make this happen? Or wouldn't it be cool if like this was a thing? Or like if we did this and stuff like that and just just fireworks um, because we felt comfortable enough. Because those are very like vulnerable thought to put ideas out there like that, to put any idea out there. That's a very vulnerable like move. But, you know, we were at a point where like we could do that and it felt great to just get our ideas out to each other and talk about them. So they kind of just sat there, nothing happened. But then um, the following semester, we took a music history course with Dr. Penny Brandt. She is amazing. Shout out to Dr. Brandt. I mean, she stepped in. See, because I was was behind in a a year in my sequence because of a little uh, mishap I had freshman year with not going to class. And I was in a lot of classes with you since I was in the the year below me's music history sequence. And I remember Dr. Brandt wasn't supposed to teach that class, but, you know, due to the really unfortunate passing of Dr. Elliot Anikolitz, you know, the school needed to find somebody really quickly. And Dr. Brandt, I think, just stepped in. And the class was really, really great because she was the first professor I had, at least, that was very open and didn't really have this rigid mindset of like this is the canon and it's so important you know what she what i loved about her is that um this is so she made sure that like yeah she still taught us from the textbook like what we needed to know but she made sure to incorporate like women and you know people of color that were relevant to the time periods being discussed but not included in the textbook we would spend hours, just in hours, just at the SAC, just like digging on the internet, looking for the blackest, brownest composers we could find and write about. And um, during those little like research binges we would do, we hit so many walls. And we were just like, this is hard. Like I would find a composer and be like, cool, let me learn more. And then there's, you know, maybe a cool story, but like a skimpy Wikipedia biography or like no sheet music or like, you know, just the resources weren't there. Um, so it was very difficult to like make any progress or write about anything. Um, and the same was would be true if I would go to YouTube to find pieces. Um, like I find, I still remember there's this one like, I think it's either Cuban or Colombian, um this one a beautiful art song in spanish that i found and i wrote a blog post about it and um i like wanted to find it and i couldn't 
like anywhere like I spent days like looking to see if there was like prints of this somewhere or like something written about the composer or the piece and like nothing all I had was this like very poor quality recording of someone singing the aria with piano and so with hitting those walls and having these realization like realizations and like um, stuff like that Chelsea and I were like okay it's it sucks because we don't learn or know much about people with non-white male backgrounds but they definitely exist because we're definitely finding names and like little snippets of like stuff here and there but it's it's hard because we don't have enough information to like play it more or learn about it so because we can't play or like write about it then you know the cycle continues then people don't get to hear it so it just kind of gets brushed to the side exactly and so this was when around the time when you and chelsea got together and thought well what if we did something about this so that's when we uh, worked on our first grant to create a project um called exposure which exposure was basically kind of combating like what we had experienced like um not being able to find recordings of anything so as musicians or even as educators like listening is a huge part of what we do when we study or work on pieces or teach pieces but you know for pieces by like composers of marginalized identities recordings don't exist how many times have you like gone on youtube and just spend hours just clicking on different pieces until you found a new one that you liked you know i've done that several times composers of like marginalized backgrounds don't have that luxury because throughout history they weren't you know their music wasn't allowed to be preserved or wasn't considered valuable or like worthy of preservation so exposure is kind of this project that like let's make recording so that these resources do exist so that people can find them and can play them more yeah so this started we started this in like very early 2018 is when this project first started when we started working on our very first grant it yeah and another element that we wanted to incorporate was um that with this this video series we wanted to reject the idea of like so classical music is very elitist like you have to wear a suit and tie if you're going to go to a classical symphony concert but we chelsea and i i mean you know us like we're very much not that those type of people like yeah we're classical musicians but like not like that you know yeah not in the mold yeah so like we don't want the videos to be like that either because classical music doesn't have to be this uptight elitist thing like i mean it is but we're not gonna we don't want to contribute to that like if anything you want to you want to undo that do your work to undo it yeah, break it up a little bit so like we would make our recordings in like niche places. I think at one point we um, borrowed Dr. Brandt's apartment to film Samantha Ege, who's now a professor, a lecturing professor at Oxford. Um, yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. I, I remember. Yeah. She just finished her uh, like doctorate. She, you know, did an amazing like dissertation on like Florence Price and just like black woman composer. She's a pianist and like researcher, um, but she's incredible incredible musician super smart yeah she's teaching at oxford now holy fuck that is so amazing yeah but like for example we filmed her 
in Penny's living room, which is so cute. Um, that was such a fun filming session or like in people's bedrooms or like outside or we use at one point like a staircase inside of like the liberal arts building at UT. But um, and, and what was cool about these videos is that, you know, though they were done without this stuffiness and elitism, they were still extremely well done. You know, you guys had a lot of good camera work. The video quality was great. The audio quality was great. The presentation of it was great. Oh, amazing. Yeah. They did a really great job on that. It was very high quality. You, you paid it. You did what was needed. You paid attention to the quality of the actual work, which I think is the root of this is that you are giving them the high quality attention that they deserve that they did not get because they are either, they are from a marginalized group of people that weren't considered worthy enough to have the luxury of preservation like other composers. Yeah, so that project, it still exists. We still have like our Instagram and YouTube. That project is also like a full-time job and we were also full-time students. Um, and also right now we're spread out all over the country uh, now that we've graduated. So I feel like more than anything, it's been nice to kind of see like a rippling effect to some extent, because our project started in 2018. But as we see like this summer, a lot of projects have like popped up after um, what happened over this past summer. Um, but you know, even before that, like, I think our project kind of started conversations, like at least amongst Butler, like people were like, oh, and you know, um, we had a lot of support from like some faculty. We also had some pushback. From, really? Like, I didn't know about that. I mean, we, I'm not surprised in the slightest. I think it was like a, a workshop for the finalists in, um, in the first grant competition we entered. And we gave like a rough pitch. And um, one of the guys was just like, this isn't really a problem, is it? Like, you're making this up. And we were just like, you're kidding. Like, you just invalidated my entire existence because this project has been birthed from like literally our traumas. So, so stuff like that. I mean, it's heavy stuff, but necessary. And like, it's good to see, you know, since and even now people talking about it more, like making the effort. And I think you also, uh, y'all also touched on some really relevant themes and ideas too. I seem to recall one of the last videos that y'all did was uh, My Body, My Choice with, I think that was Kate Amrine, who's also doing Brass Out Loud now. That's also something to check out, but that was an incredible video, incredible shoot. That semester when that was being filmed, Peyton, oh, so our exposure team was consisted of four people, Chelsea and I, the co-founders, and then, um, Olivia, who's a classically trained violinist, but she um, majored in English. Super like talented, like visionary. And then Peyton, who has nothing to do with music. He like majored in radio, television, film and journalism, but he was, he's freaking amazing with the camera. And like, so he was actually doing like a, a New York semester that semester like he was in new york um that exchange program wow i can't use yeah utny that that um and so none of us could be there so he actually met them and filled them and edited the entire like like he filmed them over there um by himself so that was really cool um everyone like everyone on the team is like really talented but yeah that was a really cool video it's just very indicative of what y'all are about. And I mean, I really hope that at some point exposure can kind of come back, but 
yeah so videos and archives we're all just spread out kind of trying to we all just graduated trying to like adult and survive but there are like a few more videos that we will eventually release once we all have time to actually work on them and i think um y'all's last instagram post real quick was really great it just said classical music is racist just oh. straight up and so many people i i went to, i got up in arms about this i was arguing with dumbasses on there left and right <laughs> in, a soldier in the comments <laughs> it was it was a great post great graphic their instagram is at exposure.tv sorry and it, it's a great page everybody should check it out yeah so moving forward what's it like now what's next for you that's a daunting question yeah so i started my master's here at yale i think right now the focus is especially with the way my transition <laughs> up here went down Honestly, I just want to get better at my instrument and see what I can do. Like for me personally, my most fulfilling musical experiences have been collaborative and it's been hard to like do collaborative things in a pandemic, but I don't know. I'm staying curious, like hopefully this thing like gets a little more manageable um, just so I have more opportunities to explore. I don't know. I'm just kind of riding the wave right now. I'm also, I'm not going to lie. Like I'm a little burnt out from undergrad in the summer. <laughs> um, Very normal I, thing. Very normal thing to be burnt yeah. out after getting a degree. Oh yeah. And the thing is, it wasn't only like I got a degree, but like I didn't realize how much I was doing until after I left. And I look back now, I'm just like, like I was, you know we were writing grants like doing all this research and stuff like as undergrads you don't need to do any of that and like the thing is it wasn't just we weren't doing any of this on like shallow like or oh another beethoven paper like this was very emotionally like mentally taxing because like what we were doing is directly tied to like who we are and like our experiences and stuff like that so that you know that contributed to the burnout. Yeah, exactly. This That's a really great point because, you know, when you're a person who belongs to this marginalized community and you take up this fight, you are not doing it for any performative or any selfish reasons. This is survival in this field. This is saying, hey, I belong here and I need to fight for my place. You know, and I think that's why it's really, it raises an eyebrow when somebody who's, not uh, doesn't belong to a marginalized group in this field takes up the fight because you're like well are you using your platform to help a marginalized person because it, it what stake do you really have in it you know you are fighting and fighting is taxing yeah dude i mean for anyone who's not fighting for like themselves like let's be real it's an aesthetic like it's, it's a trend right now, especially with, you know, the things, the events of this past summer um, and like all the attention the Black Lives Matter movement was getting and all these things, like it was especially like taxing after, like when that was happening, just watching things go down. Cause I'm just like, these are the things that people like me have been talking about and trying to get y'all to care about for years. But you know, it takes, it really takes the mass death of like, of black people for y'all to pay attention. And the only reason why y'all are paying attention is because 
they're not, you know, they're not letting you ignore it anymore. Like it's in your face, whether you like it or not. And um, since then, like all these initiatives pop up, but they're, you know, maybe surface level or don't truly understand, like, at least in music, like to dismantle like racism, it's more than just programming a piece by a black or Latinx composer on your program. It's more questioning the institution of classical music itself because it's like wand repair. It doesn't matter how many pieces you program, that's not gonna bring back all of the history that's been erased or suppressed. Like, I think if, if you know, change is really, really like, if you wanna really change classical music, we just have to start over. You know, this is something that not a lot of people are gonna wanna hear, but it is so broken at this point. And I remember being so upset with seeing all these schools and orchestras coming out, issuing statements of uh, anti-discrimination and anti-racism when they had absolutely no idea what they were talking about. Super conservative orchestras as well that- yeah, that they're really part of the problem. Yes, that have historically, yes, that have historically been part of the problem. But yeah, that's, we'll definitely have to do another episode on this, but um, I'd like to end with, what would you tell 18 year old Katya? So I don't, like with my experiences at Butler, I learned that I learned that fitting in wasn't really going to be a thing. So if there's not a space for myself, make it. So I think that's what I would tell myself, like if I could go back in time, like before I start my undergrad, like um, one, stay curious, like be curious. It's okay to be curious. And then two, like don't worry about fitting a mold like no matter how hard you try you're never going to and that's okay make your own mold um and yeah I think I eventually figured that out halfway through but there was still you know I feel like telling myself that years ago might have helped me get through everything I did sooner I think that's all really great advice and yeah this was an awesome conversation I'm so glad we got to talk and I think you have a lot to offer and I can't wait to see what you're going to offer the music world and the world in general, you know, especially after school. And I know it's kind of rocky right now, but you're going to flourish. You're amazing. Great musician, great person. So thank you so much for talking with us and sharing your knowledge, Katya. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Justin. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Awesome. Yeah. Well, you take care and uh, thanks for being on the episode. Thanks, you too, man.